Good morning. Luke chapter 8, verse 26 through 39. Then they sailed to the country of Gerasenes, which is opposite Galilee. When Jesus had stepped out on the land, there met him a man from the city who had demons. For a long time, he had worn no clothes. He had not lived in a house, but among the tombs. When he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell down before him and said with a loud voice, What have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I beg you, do not torment me. For he had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man. For many a time it had seized him. He was kept under guard and bound with chains and shackles. But he would break the bonds and be driven by the demon into the desert. Jesus then asked him, what is your name? And he said, Legion, for many demons had entered him. And they begged him not to command them to depart and into the abyss. Now a large herd of pigs were feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him to let them enter these. So he gave them permission. Then the demons came out of the man and entered the pigs, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and drowned. When the herdsmen saw what had happened, they fled and told it in the city and in the country. Then people went out to see what had happened, and they came to Jesus and found the man from whom the demons had gone, sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. And those who had seen it told them how the demon-possessed man had been healed. Then all the people of the surrounding country of the Gerasenes asked him to depart from them, for they were seized with great fear. So they got into the boat and returned. The man from whom the demons had gone begged that he might be with him. But Jesus sent him away, saying, Return to your home and declare how much God has done for you. And he went away, proclaiming throughout the whole city how much Jesus had done for him. The word of the Lord. Do you think it's possible to simply not see something that's right in front of you? Well, how about a little experiment? There was a study that was done about 10 years ago on selective attention. Um, it's a short little video. You can actually watch it on YouTube. But the instructions are simple. There are two teams of people, one in white and one in black shirts. And the goal is to count how many times the team in the white shirts passes the basketball. So you go through, and, and they do the study, and people are counting, and they submit their answers. But then, once the study is over, the people running the study ask the participants, okay, great, now, did you see the gorilla? And people are like, what do you mean gorilla? But then they rewind the video, and sure enough, there it is, a big gorilla dancing in the midst of the teams. More than half the people who took the study never saw the gorilla. 
I remember when this video came out, I didn't see the gorilla. Um, and most of those people were absolutely positive that if there had been a gorilla, surely they would have seen it. The point is simple. There are all kinds of things we never see, not because they're not there to see, but because we're not paying attention. All kinds of things, we, we never see them because we're not paying attention. And it's not even completely our fault. Because if you're instructed to keep your eyes on a flying basketball, of course that's going to make it a lot harder to notice a gorilla. You know, in our culture, that is exactly the situation we find ourselves in when it comes to God. Our culture trains us to pay attention to certain things, but because of that, um, there are all kinds of other things we miss. Big things, important things. You may even believe in those things, but those things make very little difference in your actual life because you're paying attention to something else, which means you miss those things. What if we're missing God? That doesn't mean that you don't believe in God, but what if we're missing God's presence, God's action, God's love, because we're paying attention to something else? How sad would it be to find out that God was there the whole time, but we missed him? This passage that we just read is an antidote for that. We're in a series in which we're looking at strange encounters with Jesus. And the goal is to let the strangeness of the encounter wake us up to the reality of Jesus. And this passage we just read is strange. In fact, it's terrifying because it's not just an encounter with Jesus, it's an encounter with supernatural evil. That's not to mention this whole thing with the pigs, which in and of itself is totally bizarre. But it is precisely because this is an encounter with evil, supernatural evil, that it helps us to wake up and not miss Jesus. How does it do that? Well, let's find out by seeing three things this morning in this passage. We're going to see the reality of evil, the defeat of evil, and lastly, our response to it all. Okay? The reality of evil, the defeat of evil, and our response to it all. First, this passage shows us the reality of evil. Now, this story actually takes place in a series of stories that show us Jesus' power over different things. So right before this story, Jesus calms a storm. That shows us his power over nature. And right after this story, Jesus heals a sick woman, and then he raises a little girl from the dead, and that shows us Jesus' power over sickness and even death. Now, let's just stop right there for a moment. Nature, sickness, and death. As modern people, we have absolutely no problem with the reality of these things, because all of these things occur in our mundane, quotidian, ordinary, everyday world, what we would call the natural world. But we really struggle with the things in this story, like unclean spirits, demonic possession. That's not natural. It's supernatural. And therefore, for us modern people, it's questionable. It's contestable. It's doubtful. It's even laughable. Like, come on, you don't really believe in that stuff, do you? Sure, ancient people believed in things like that. So if there was somebody running around naked, sleeping in graveyards like the guy in this story, of course ancient people said, well, it's a demon. That's just because they didn't know about things like mental illness. To them, everything was a demon. What do we say to that? 
Well, if you look at history, you find out that ancient people actually did know the difference between mental illness, disease, and demonic possession. Um, so, for instance, if you read the Gospel of Mark, chapter 3, there's a place where it says that Jesus' family came and they wanted to take him home because they thought that he was out of his mind. That right there is showing us that not only did ancient people know the difference between mental illness and demonic possession, but they did not always explain everything by saying, it's a demon. In contrast, uh, we modern people in some ways really are the narrow-minded ones because we look at this story and we really only have one category for this mental illness. And the reason for that is because we live in what sociologists call a disenchanted world. A disenchanted world. Now, we talk about this quite a bit here. Disenchantment does not mean disillusionment or disappointment. It's a way of talking about the difference between the ancient world and our modern world. The ancient world was enchanted. People believed in angels, demons, and spirits. And they also believed that as human beings, um, we are vulnerable to those forces. Those forces can get to us. They can touch us. But Disenchantment means that we tend not to believe in those things anymore. So even if you believe in spiritual reality, disenchantment means that, that we don't think of it as something that's in the world out there, outside of us. That now as modern people, we see all meaning, all significance, all spiritual reality really is something that occurs inside of us. It's a, it's a private, subjective experience, but not a public reality. So let me give you an example of what this feels like in real time. Imagine that you go to a restaurant with some friends, and when the food comes out, somebody says, hey, can we say a prayer out loud? And so you sit there while somebody prays out loud. But how do you feel while that's going on? A little awkward, a little anxious, like, oof, I, I hope nobody's looking at me right now. Even though the next table over from you, they bring out a big birthday cake with candles on it, and not just the whole table, but the whole waitstaff, and the whole restaurant breaks out into song, out loud, happy birthday to you, and nobody feels anxious, nobody feels awkward. Why? It's because disenchantment makes us believe that spiritual reality is a private, subjective experience, not a public reality. So when we come to a story like this, demon possession, it's natural for us to look for natural explanations to the story. And you know what? With Jesus' other miracle stories, it's, it's not hard to find natural explanations for them. Like, for instance, Jesus calms a storm. Okay, we say, maybe at the moment when Jesus stood up in the boat and said, peace, be still, it just so happened that at that very moment, the storm system was moving on. So to these gullible ancient people, of course, it looked like Jesus did a miracle. Voila, perfectly natural explanation. Here's what's so interesting about this story. Um, obviously, one of the really strange elements in this story is this whole thing with the pigs. I mean, it's spooky, it's scary, and there are other problems with it I'll talk about later. But here's the thing. You know, we can find natural explanations for Jesus' other miracles, but the pigs make it really hard to do in this story. Because here's this man running around naked, breaking chains, um, 
living in graveyards, and, and all of a sudden, he cries out for everybody to hear, Jesus, don't send us into the abyss, send us into the pigs. And then, with a word from Jesus, the next thing you know, thousands of pigs are rushing down a hillside and drowning in a lake. These pigs are exploding our disenchanted view of the world. Because whatever's going on here, it is obviously not just a private, subjective experience that's only happening inside of the man. The pigs is showing, are showing us that something else is going on here publicly. The pigs are waking us up to spiritual reality. It's a startling, vivid picture of supernatural evil. It's like a dancing gorilla running up to you, shaking you by the shoulders and saying, here I am. I will not allow you to ignore me. Pay attention. The pigs are waking us up to spiritual reality. Because here's what's going on. I mean, this, this is public. This is happening for everybody to see. Friends, here's the point. You know, our culture trains us to ignore some things and pay attention to other things. And especially our culture trains us to pay attention to flying basketballs like science, technology, politics, stock market prices, and social media. Just because we don't see a gorilla doesn't mean there isn't one dancing in our midst. One of the most difficult things in our disenchanted world is to pay attention to spiritual reality that God is constantly acting, constantly moving, constantly working, constantly intervening in our world and in our lives. That there really is a spiritual reality that's there to see, but the problem is our disenchanted world trains us to look at other things, to miss spiritual reality. This passage is waking us up to that reality. And that leads to our next point. We've just seen the reality of evil, but secondly, this passage shows us the defeat of evil. Let's take a look at the actual encounter, okay? Um, Jesus sails across the Sea of Galilee and comes to the country of Gerasenes, and then he steps ashore and he meets a demon-possessed man. That's where things get really interesting, because the man falls down at Jesus' feet and he cries out, what have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I beg you, do not torment me, for he had, that's Jesus, had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man. In other words, Jesus sees this man and he's commanding the demon to come out of him, but the demon's resisting. In fact, um, uh, what's really going on here is we, we find out that there's multiple demons here, but the demon is resisting Jesus. And so notice how it goes. Jesus says to the man, what is your name? And the man says, legion, for many demons had entered him. What's going on here is, is the demons aren't just resisting. This is a power struggle. What, this word legion is not a name. It's a number. In fact, it's a word that was used to refer to a battalion of Roman soldiers. And depending on the time in, in history, this word legion could have referred to anywhere between 3,500 and 8,000 soldiers. In fact, um, in the Gospel of Mark version of this, um, he has the note that uh, the herd of pigs, there was about 2,000 pigs, which means there is at least this many demons. In other words, this is, the demons are trying to intimidate Jesus. They're saying, oh, you want a name? There is no name. There is only power. We are legion. It's intimidation tactics. But actually, it's kind of comedic because really what's going on here is it's a bluff. 
it's empty. It's trash talk, but it's all empty. Because even though there are thousands of demons here, they know that they are no match for Jesus. So if you notice, not once, but twice, they're actually begging Jesus. They say, please, don't send us into the abyss. That's the place of the dead. They say, please, send us into the pigs instead. They're begging Jesus. They know they can't hold on forever. They know they're, they're about to get sucked out of the man. It's kind of like, um, have you ever seen one of those disaster movies where an airplane breaks in half in midair? And all of a sudden, everyone in the plane is like in danger of getting sucked out of the plane. So now you have all these people hanging onto their seats for dear life. And they know that, you know, the power of the wind is way too much for them. They are not going to be able to hold on forever. At some point, they are going to get sucked out of the plane. That's what's going on with the demons in this passage. They know they can't hold on forever. They're about to get sucked out. That's what's happening here. And so um, they're engaged in this power struggle, but really they're begging Jesus not, not to... Um, not to send them into the abyss, but to send them into the pigs. But it's really, I mean, amazing. I mean, notice the way Jesus actually says this. I mean, the way, he, the way it puts it is this. So he gave them permission. It's like, they, he, Jesus gave them permission. Like, okay, go ahead. The demons came out of the man and entered the pigs. Now, this is mind-blowing, and here's why. There are actually lots of accounts of exorcisms from the ancient world. And in every single one of those accounts, whenever somebody's trying to cast a demon out of someone else, they always, always have to call upon a higher name of a higher power in order to do it. It's always like, I adjure you by the name of so-and-so, or I command you by the name of such-and-such to come out of this person. In the history of the world, the only person that has never done this is Jesus. Jesus is the only person in the history of the world that never calls upon a higher name because Jesus is the higher name. Jesus is the higher power. And it's like this in all of Jesus' miracles. Whenever you look at Jesus' miracles in the the gospel accounts of his life, he never makes a big show out of it. It's never like, okay, everybody, now stand back. Give me lots of room here while I roll up my sleeves and get to work. There's none of that. Jesus with a word, he calms a storm. He heals someone. He raises someone from the dead. With a word, he just says, be healed, be still, be raised. And they are with a word. To the demons, it feels like they're getting sucked out of an airplane. But for Jesus, it's just like, Whoosh. have you ever seen a feather floating down in front of you and you just Whoosh. blow it off course? Just the tiniest breath. That's what this is like for Jesus. And even that is probably really more for our sake than for Jesus. But friends, here's the point. Remember, the pigs are waking us up to spiritual reality. That this is not just a private, subjective experience. That there is power, spiritual power, at work, in the world, outside of us. Look at what it did to this man. Look at what it did to these pigs. There's spiritual power at work in the world. Coming face to face with that in our disenchanted world is like seeing an invisible gorilla, a dancing gorilla for the very first time. It changes everything. It transforms everything. Here's the big point this morning. If, if waking up to that reality has that kind of transformative power in our life, how much more transformative 
and powerful would it be to come face to face with the one who commands that reality with a mere word. There's a British theologian named N.T. Wright, who's also a beautiful writer. Notice what he writes about Jesus in one of his books. He says, how can you live with the terrifying thought that the hurricane has become human, that fire has become flesh, that life itself came to life and walked in our midst? Christianity either means that or it means nothing. It is either the most devastating disclosure of the deepest reality in the world, or it's a sham, a nonsense, a bit of deceitful play acting. Most of us, unable to cope with saying either of those things, condemn ourselves to live in the shallow world in between. To live in the shallow world in between means to reduce God to a concept, something that only exists to help you feel good about your life, help you feel good about yourself, help you live the good life, whatever the good life is as you define it. And as long as this God as a concept is helping you do that, then you're content to keep this God in your life. But if he doesn't do that, then you get rid of that God and find some other concept that will help you do those things. Friends, this passage is getting us out of the shallows and into the fathomless depths of who Jesus really is. In fact, this whole passage, this is what it's showing us, that God is not concept. God is reality. Not a reality. He is ultimate reality. And Jesus is that ultimate reality with whom we have to deal. And that leads to our last point. We've seen the reality of evil, that there is spiritual power at work in this world. We don't see it. We don't pay attention to it. But that doesn't mean it's not there. The pigs are waking us up to that. We've seen the defeat of evil, that Jesus, with a word, defeats this evil and casts it out of a man, that, that, that real power is coming face to face, not with supernatural evil, but the one who commands that evil. But lastly, we need to look at our response to it all. That's the last thing we see here. And really, here's the thing. The whole Christian life is a response to this. Okay, that goes without saying. But let me just point out a couple of things, a couple of implications that are especially prominent in this passage. And the first one is this. When the townspeople see the demon-possessed man um, sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind, notice they say, it says that they were afraid. Then all the people asked Jesus to depart from them, for they were seized with great fear. Their first impulse is to ask Jesus to get away from them. And it's not hard to understand why. Think of the questions that would have been going on in their minds. What did he do to this man? What did he do to these pigs? What might he do to me? But if you put their fear and their questions together, it's really pointing us to a deeper question. What are you most afraid of? The evil and darkness that's in your own life or the trauma really the death, but good death, of what it would take to, to free you from the evil in your life, whether it's evil forces outside of you, evil forces inside of you, or maybe some combination of those. When I was an active alcoholic and drug addict, the idea of getting sober terrified me way more than the actual torment that was in my life at that time. Friends, every single one of us has things in your life like that right now, things that hurt you and enslave you. And even though they hurt you 
and enslave you, you've made a kind of peace with them. Like, as long as you don't make any sudden movements, as long as you don't change anything, the pain is kind of manageable. But the prospect of, of dealing with the change that would be necessary, of dealing with what it would take to actually get rid of that pain and hurt and enslavement in your life, to us, that feels a lot like the man in this passage when he first meets Jesus, do not torment me. We would much rather deal with the pain of keeping things the way they are than deal with the pain of change because that feels like torment. But friends, with Jesus, what feels like torment is really transformation. There's a story C.S. Lewis tells about a ghost from hell who visits the outskirts of heaven. And he's got a little red lizard on his shoulder that's constantly whispering in his ear, tormenting him, afflicting him, demonizing him. And the ghost is about to leave heaven at the urging of this little red lizard when a massive burning angel shows up and asks the ghost, would you like me to make him quiet? And the ghost says, of course I would. So the angel takes a step forward and says, may I kill it? And the ghost says, wait a minute, you didn't say anything about killing it. The angel says, there's no other way. May I kill it? Well, can we maybe have a conversation about this? There's no time. May I kill it? Oh, look, it's gone to sleep. I'm sure it won't be any trouble anymore. Yes, it will. May I kill it? You know what? I think the gradual process is really a lot more beneficial. No, the gradual process is of no use. May I kill it? You know, get back from me. You're hurting me now. You're starting to burn me. You're going to kill me. I will not kill you. But you're hurting me now. I didn't say it wouldn't hurt you. I said it wouldn't kill you. May I kill it? And at this point, like the angel is so close, its hands are closing in on the lizard. And now the lizard starts chattering to the ghost saying, watch out, he can do it now. He can really kill me. And then where would you be? You'd be without me forever and ever. I'll admit sometimes I've gone too far in the past, but I'll be good from now on. You'll see. And the whole time the angel is still standing there saying, I kill it. And finally, the ghost cries out, oh, get it over with. Just do it. God, help me. God, help me. And the angel grabs the lizard, breaks its neck, and flings it to the ground. And then, amazingly, all of a sudden, the ghost, which was like nothing, all of a sudden is transformed into a radiant, glorious being, almost as big as the angel itself. And then the lizard that's on the ground comes up and it's transformed into a silver-white stallion with a mane and a tail of gold. And the man jumps on the stallion and they ride off into the mountains of deep heaven. Friends, when Jesus comes into your life, he looks at the evil perched on your shoulder, at the evil festering in your heart, and he says, may I kill it? It is going to hurt. It, it will feel like death because in many ways it is, but it's the death of death. It's the death of evil. Really, it's the death of sin. All the ways that we turn God into a concept in order to serve us rather than surrendering to God's vision for our life and serving him. Our first response to the reality of Jesus is to let him kill the evil that's killing us. Now, that is an ongoing process. But second, Notice that Jesus tells the man, um, return to your home and declare how much God has done for you. Now, that word declare is a word that literally means to narrate or tell a story. 
Jesus is saying, I want you to go back to your community, go back to people and tell them about how God is not just a concept, but God is a living reality that intervened in your life. That's what he's telling this man to do. And that's what he's telling us to do, that we would go out and we would tell people the story of what God has done in our lives. So first, Jesus gets to work in our life. But then Jesus tells us to go out in public, into community, and share that story, tell that story among other people. And that does two things. First, it encourages other people to meet this Jesus. But secondly, it pushes back on the disenchantment of our world by creating a public space where we can pay attention to this God who's not just a concept, but a living reality that intervenes in this world and in your lives. Because the biblical storyline is all about the public reality that one day God was going to send a king who would rescue us from, from our enemies and, and bring about a whole new creation. But this passage is showing us that the enemies God rescues us from are not other people, not other nations, other cultures, other political parties. The enemies God rescues us from are evil, sin, suffering, and death. In fact, this passage also shows us the real way that King Jesus defeats these enemies. Because one of the other big problems that people have noticed with the pigs in this story is that, especially for us modern people, it feels like such a tragic waste of precious life. And it is. But keep in mind that for ancient people, this wasn't a waste of life, it was a waste of money. The, the pigs was livestock, the pigs was wealth. They didn't see life perishing in the lake. They saw wealth perishing in front of their eyes. But if you put all of that together, really all of that is pressing us to ask an even deeper question. If, if the pigs are showing us the tragic cost of, of what it takes to rescue one person from evil, how much more would it cost God to rescue the whole world? The pigs give us a concept of that. The cross of Jesus Christ shows us the reality of that, Because at the end of his life, Jesus wasn't just chained and shackled. He was nailed to a cross. Jesus was crying out. Jesus was stripped naked. Jesus was tormented. Jesus was isolated, not just from the community of people he loved, but from, but from the love of God the Father himself. And whereas the demons were set free to go into the pigs, Jesus really was plunged into the ultimate abyss of true death, horror, torment, oblivion. Jesus really was killed so that the transformation he offers you, even though it, it feels like it'll kill you, it, it'll hurt you, but it won't kill you. It'll only make you more radiant and glorious than you could ever have imagined. The more you pay attention to the cross, the more real Jesus becomes to you and the more power and the more transformation comes to your life. And that sends you out into the world now to tell your story, to narrate publicly what God has done for you. Not a private, subjective experience, but a public reality. And maybe, just maybe, that might turn you into something of a dancing gorilla in the lives of somebody else so that they might look at you and say, I never noticed this before. Could you tell me more? Let's pray. Abba, we praise you this morning that you are not just some private concept, not just some subjective inner experience, but you are the living reality of all creation, of all reality, Lord, and that you 
not only created all things, but that you act, you intervene, you work in this world to change things, to change reality, and Father, especially to, um, to rid this world and free us of evil and death and suffering and sin. And we praise you for that. And we pray more and more that you would help us not to tell you to get away from us because of the fear of, of the pain of change, but you would help us to embrace you and your transformational work in our lives and that you would help us to go out into the world as, um, as vessels, as, as storytellers, Lord, of this God who is not a concept but a living reality. Lord, be more and more at work in our lives this day, this week, and for the rest of our lives. For We pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.